that was the second bell. So let's go ahead and, and get started here. And just a, uh, uh, a quick reminder, quick review. And I've done that in, uh, in the last class, and I'll do it again in this class. Uh, just a quick review of what we're talking about. In this one, we are uh, we're covering humanism, relativism, and pluralism. And again, pluralism, not much, just to define it is really all I want. And to make you aware that that's definitely part of, of our society today. And what pluralism means, is, and pluralism is very related to relativism. It kind of grows from relativism. And pluralism just basically states that there are multiple right ways and that we must accept all of those right ways specifically as it regards religion. So we must live, America must be a, a country that is accepting of Islam, accepting of Hindu, accepting of paganism. You know, they might say accepting of Christianity, but I'm not sure. I, I think maybe they, they, they're, they're ready to push, push uh, uh, Christians out. Uh, so that's what pluralism is, and that is obviously grows out of relativism. Um, does anyone remember the definition of relativism? No absolute truth, everything's relative. Everything, everything's relative, no absolute truth. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time today, is looking at relativism. And I think that this is the one, you know, we backed up to humanism, that's where we started, because relativism is one of those, I mentioned the four, kind of, and four is really my you know, those were four things that stood out. I don't know if anyone has written, hey, there are four tenets of humanism, but just reading through the manifestos, I came up with four things that really stood out to me as characterizing humanism. And relativism is one of those four that just characterizes humanism. Um, and relativism, I think, is the one that's probably most important to us because, A, our society is relativistic, and that has grown out of the stronghold that humanists have in government positions, in education positions, and so forth. And relativism has affected us. It is, it, it's affected, it, it is around us so much that it's affected our mindset. It has affected uh, all those that we come in contact with, probably much more so than us. But we are somewhat affected by relativism. And I think we'd be kidding ourselves to say that we're not. Um, and so to kind of make us aware of that, and get back. And this morning, I want us to get back to some of the roots of it and look at some clear Bible passages that say that absolute truth exists and absolute truth can be understood, and that wrong interpretations exist and they must be resisted. That's where I want us to look this morning at the Bible teaching on that. And the reason why you know we've been talking about humanism, atheism, evolution, that kind of thing. The reason why I want us to use the Bible more this morning, you know, when you're arguing with a straight-up atheist, you know, showing Bible passages isn't, isn't going to carry a lot of weight with him. So last time, you'll remember, we, we looked at some more logical arguments and, and reasoning with, you know, someone who says there is no God. Today, I want us to look more at relativism because many of the people that we're going to, to talk to uh, in this part of the country, I believe, are going to have some religious background, and many of the people you come into contact with are, are probably going to agree, yes, the Bible is God's Word, and we ought to do what the Bible says. But their thinking has been so influenced by relativism that they don't really believe we can understand the Bible. And so I want us to look at some of those things and, and, um, and, and look at how to show 
I think the key is show, hey, relativism, this idea that, that we're all right, um, you're okay, I'm okay, that comes right from atheism, humanism. That, that's where that comes from, help people realize that, and then move on to show, all right, the Bible indeed can be understood and truth can be attained. And that's where I want us to go this morning. Just kind of give you the idea of the direction we're going this morning. Um, so, quick review. Humanism is a religion. We've shown that. The main tenets of humanism, these are the four. And again, that's my term. I don't think you'll see that anywhere else. Um, and if so, then I want them to come to me because I kind of made that up. I want, I want them to, to give me some royalties on that. Uh, atheism, evolution, uh, relativism, and the autonomy of man. Those are four things that just stood out to me as I was reading that. Um, uh, and so we're, we're focused more on, uh, we, we did deal with these already, and the autonomy of man is related to those, and that's the idea that, that you know, man is autonomous, that, that the ultimate goal of a man is to, is to improve himself in this life, because when this life is over, that's it, there's nothing else. So that, that uh, and, you know, that's kind of, so those three are so related. And then relativism is where we're going to be uh, today. The documents that lay out these are the Humanist Manifestos, 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and we looked at ethics, and I wanted to, to quickly review this. Um, and, and I don't have all these up that, we, that we've gone over. But some key ones, a civilized society should be a tolerant one. That's from the Humanist Manifesto, uh, number 2. And just want to you know, keep in mind that that's what they're pushing for, is tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. And tolerance in all ways, and specifically in the areas of sexuality. They want us to be tolerant of, of fornication in all its forms, is, is basically what they want. Um, though they would, you know, they would in, in this manifesto, they do say anything that's, that's abusive or denigrating, we don't need to tolerate that. But again, my question to the humanists would be, all right. If relativism is indeed true, where do you draw the line? I mean, why can you say that? That well, if it's abusive or denigrating, then then it's wrong. Well, if there are no absolutes, how can you say that? Maybe it's not wrong to someone else. Maybe someone has a way to justify that, and in their relative perspective, that's okay. You see what I'm saying? I don't know how they draw that line, but they do in that to just to to be somewhat fair to what they've written. But they're very aggressively um, in the area of sexual morality or immorality. They're very aggressively uh, pursuing that we should be more tolerant of that. Uh, civil liberties and the number of euphemisms that they come up, for, come up with for just flat out fornication and being tolerant of it. And I did want to review this. This is Bob's, not mine. But he pointed these out to me. The key humanists. How did humans come to be? Well, we didn't have an answer until the evolutionists and Charles Darwin gave some justification for that. You know, what about the rise and fall of nations? That the Bible just absolutely answers that question. Well, Karl Marx gave us that answer with the class battles and so forth. Um, and then the, the physical and the spiritual, that, that obvious conflict that exists in man. A desire to do things, but then you you know you do something different um, that Paul addressed in Romans chapter eight. It, so very eloquently he addresses that um, you know the things I would that, that those I don't do and so forth. But Freud gave an answer with his conscious and unconscious, his his, his ego, and then being the the conscious and then the 
id and superego being the, the unconscious. So that's some key humanists um, that, are, that have explained away um, behaviors and, and phenomenon that the Bible very easily explains. There is a single supernatural all-powerful who created and instilled a soul in us and who is in control of the nations. <laughs> and that's the simple answer the Bible gives, but humanists have to have some other answer for that. We did touch on this last time, but I think it's extremely important that we understand the goals of humanism. Uh, all associations <coughs> and institutions, that includes us, that includes religions, the humanists are looking to infiltrate that. And this morning, we're going to address some of their successes in terms of the reason why so many religious organizations have this relativistic thinking is because the humanists have invaded their, their educational institutions. That's what has happened. And that is their goal. All associations exist for the fulfillment of human life. Um, and again, uh, these religious institutions must be reconstituted as rapidly as experience allows in order to function effectively in the modern world. So that is their goal. Um, in other words, humanism wants to infiltrate and challenge all religious institutions and change all religious institutions to be more humanist. And don't be deceived, you and I have been affected by humanism. Don't, don't think you haven't, you have. Um, you, can't, you, know, you can't be around and, and just bombarded with such thinking so much without it affecting you in some way. And, and I hope we can be aware of that. And again, we've talked about how that their tentacles have reached into basically everything. Entertainment, no doubt. Uh, in fact, Oliver Stone was one of the, the signers of the Humanist Manifesto. Uh, um, I believe number two. It might have been number three. Um, government, there's no doubt with the things that, that our, our government are push, is pushing that there are humanists that are in very high positions in our nation's government. Uh, in the education, both higher and lower education. Um, and one thing here I didn't even mention, well, next is religion, but in religious education, that's really where humanists have, have taken uh, a stronghold and they're going after this objective here, is to go in and create doubt in the minds of those who are going to be out um, pastoring, using that term accommodatively, not biblically, but pastoring the denominational churches, they are infiltrating those people with, um, uh, with doubt that miracles happen, with doubts about the inspiration of Scripture, and that is their goal, and that's what they're doing. And, and they're succeeding, again, beyond their, their wildest imagination, I would think. Um, and again, just kind of a, um, the cause and effects... Uh, these are some things that, that give their roots to humanism. Uh, free thought, atheism, agnosticism, skepticism, deism, rationalism, ethical culture, liberal religion. Okay? Traces its roots back to humanism. Okay? And then humanism is back to ancient China and classical Greece and so forth. But really took off during the Renaissance. And we covered that some. Remember... Uh, we talked a little bit about the, the very briefly in the first class, I believe, but it's probably worth reviewing. Um, the Renaissance 
was a kind of a rebirth of you know new thought, and that was that took place in Europe, right, in the 1500s. And I pointed out, can you think of anything in Europe, particularly Italy? And Italy is where the Renaissance was was particularly active, and history records many Renaissance events there. Um, anything in Italy that might create an aversion to religion? Can you might think of something in Italy during the 1500s that might create an aversion to religion? How about, How about the Roman Catholic Church, right? And all the abuses there that were going on at that time, particularly at that time. Uh, and so that's kind of where humanism grows out of not justifying it or saying they were okay, but saying, can't you see how it would get its start there? An anti-religious group. I mean, I would be... I mean, many folks were, were against Roman Catholicism, and this is an extreme case of that. So you can kind of see some of the roots there. All right. So again, we looked at last time converting the humanist. Okay? Many humanists fall in that category of Romans 1 where that God has given them up. Right? They, they refuse to acknowledge God. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. But they refuse to acknowledge Him. They refuse to, to, to say that He is God. They do not have the love of the truth. So these, these, kind, these kinds of people, God has given up. And many of them fall into that. And I encourage you, don't judge, just sow the seed. Uh, you know, do what you can to convert. If, if they've been given up, then, then they'll, they'll go their way. But don't say, don't think in your mind, well, I'm not going to say anything to him. He wouldn't believe anyway. We don't know that. Okay? If, it's, you know, if it's wayside ground, then it's wayside ground. Okay? Uh, but there's plenty of seed to go around, right? <laughs> plenty of seed. Uh, and if you happen to, to hit some fertile ground, I, I, we went over, and we went in more detail on each of these four. I don't have those slides still in this deck. But we went through each of these four. The cosmological proof, do you remember what that means? Right? That, that the fact that the mere existence demands a creator. Just existence itself. The natural begs for the supernatural. Trevor used those words uh, for me. The, the natural demands that there was something supernatural. The universe is not infinite. And, and it's not eternal. There's no evidence of that. So it had to be created. That's cosmological proof. Teleological proof is the concept that the design demands a designer. Okay? And that you look at an intelligent design, everything in this world that has an intelligent design, it began with intelligent planning. So this, the, the creation is the ultimate example of intelligent design. There's nothing more intelligent than, uh, more designed more intelligently than nature. Nothing is designed more intelligently than nature. And so there had to have been an intelligent planner an intelligent designer. And that's the teleological proof. Um, the moral proof, and again, this might carry a little less weight with a, a pure humanist, but I think it is definitely something that, that might even plant seeds of doubt about relativism if you're talking to a, a true atheist humanist. And that is that the fact that, that there do exist just moral principles Remember back what I was saying about uh, um, the sexual morality? How they say, well, you know, if it's denigrating and abusive, then that's clearly wrong. Well, the fact that there are certain things that are just clearly wrong. Ask any humanist about Adolf Hitler. 
And they'll tell you he was clearly an evil person. Well, well, how do you know that? Right? The fact that there are certain things that are just clearly evil and immoral, that very fact designs that there are demands that there are moral absolutes. And the fact that there is this moral being and an absolute moral purity uh, um, that exists, and that is God. He is absolute moral purity. And I think that, that moral proof demands that there is a creator. And then the evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. And I think we looked at some briefly at some slides on that. And that that bullet alone could be an entire quarter. You know, looking at the evidences, external, historical evidence that the Bible is indeed inspired. And you've you've all heard a number of lessons on that, because I've heard several since I've been at Eastside. The the, the concept of the, you know, Covering 1,500 years, over 40 different writers. Bob did some excellent lessons on that not very long ago and how it's been preserved and um, the prophecies that have been fulfilled, uh, even historically. The fact that there are no archaeological or historical errors, even when we think there are, we learn later that, oh, the the archaeologists were wrong, not the Bible, right? We, We, that's... Evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. Time and time again, when we think the Bible's wrong, as we learn more, we figure out, oh yeah, the Bible was right after all. Uh, so those those are some very strong um, uh, arguments, strong uh, things in our corner for uh, converting the humanist. So what I want us to look at for the rest of this class is to work on converting the deceived humanist. How do we reach one who does not know how much humanism has influenced him, particularly the person who is, you know, a denominational person who is really in, just infatuated with this idea of, of let's agree to disagree. I'm okay. You're okay. And I think one thing is to educate them on the origins of that tolerant, permissive attitude. Let them know, hey, this comes from atheism, right? You don't find that in the Bible. You you don't find that. In fact. Most any of those who are members of denomination, if they trace the history of their denomination, they'll find that this thinking is very, very new even in their denomination, right? This acceptance of all the different denominations and, and grouping them together. I mean, there was a time when the, the different denominations uh, believed that there were real key differences between them and other denominations. Now, very few denominations even care that there's a difference. They don't even care. Um, and and so they, they teach almost nothing. There are a few who do teach something, but in general, they teach almost nothing. Um, then, once you can help them see the origins of this permissive, tolerant attitude, I think then you can go on and help them see that the Bible teaches that absolute truth does exist. And the Bible teaches not only does it exist, but we can understand it. And not only can we understand it, but God expects us to come to that understanding. He expects us to do that and, and to behave as if we do understand it and behave according to what that truth teaches. And that's, I think, and really, you could start here, I think, and then along the way, just kind of educate them on that. But I think these are two key ideas to keep in mind, not so much step one, step two. Once I've educated them, now I can show them truth exists. You know, kind of do both of these all along at the same time. Make sense? So far? So far so good? All right, relativism. Did I cover this slide last time? 
I don't remember if I did or not. Okay. Everybody's saying, no, I haven't ever seen this before. All right, so these are some, uh, some common phrases that when you hear these phrases, you know that that person is thinking in a relativistic way. They've been influenced by relativism. The only certainty is that there is no certainty. That really is the essence of relativism. <laughs> if you hear someone say, well, you just need to keep an open mind, right? That's oftentimes... Um, you know, oftentimes that's uh, a key tool. You know, open-minded, open-mindedness is a key thing for uh, relativists. Don't be judgmental. Don't you judge us. Don't judge me. I won't judge you. It's not our place to judge, right? That don't be judgmental. Has anyone ever heard somebody say that when you talk to them about the Bible? Has anyone not heard somebody say that? <laughs> I think everybody's heard that, right? If you, if you even suggest that something, you know, maybe unbiblical, don't be judgmental. Um, we have to avoid labeling anyone as wrong. You hear someone say, "I'm okay," "You're okay." That's again relativism, and, and this one is is pretty good as well. That's your truth, but it's not my truth. And they may phrase that another way. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me, right? Is it true? If it's true, then it's true, right? Um, let's agree to disagree. Probably have all heard that at least a million times. Let's just agree to disagree. Uh, doesn't matter who's right or wrong. We're just going to disagree. Um, and all of these attitudes foster a blind tolerance for beliefs and practices that are not biblical. The thing I've run into in talking with people is that the, the word interpretation. Yes, yeah, that, yeah. That, you know, that's just your interpretation. It's all a matter of interpretation. I always bring up uh, the case of Adam and Eve. You know, thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt not surely die. Mm-hmm. Whose interpretation was right? Or was it just a matter of interpretation that yeah, day? Yeah, yeah, good, good. And yeah, that's a very good addition to this list. And I, I probably should have thought of that and put it on there. Very good. Yeah, that's just your interpretation. That would be another key that someone is influenced by relativism. It's just your interpretation. Very good, Ralph. Um, so how has humanism affected religion in America? They've worked their way into the faculty of almost every college and university in America, including the religious ones. And that's trickled into the religious seminaries. And here are some examples of their influence on religion. Explaining away Bible miracles. I mean, even what you would consider a conservative denomination, like a, a Baptist seminary, um, you will have professors at those Baptist seminaries saying things like, well, if you believe that Jonah was really swallowed up by a fish for three days and three nights or a great sea creature, whatever, if you really believe that, you're going to have a hard time in this class. You'll have professors saying those kinds of things even in Baptist seminaries. In other words, if you really believe that the Bible miracles are not allegorical, you know, they're not just they're they're not real. They're just they're just there to, to teach a lesson. If you really believe in Bible miracles, then you're kind of duped. You're you're backwards, you're you're primitive. Um, that kind of thinking is in the religious seminaries. Um, and then once those people are trained by those professors, they go out and they pastor these local churches and guess what they do in those local churches? They teach what they've been taught. And that's why we're seeing this, this, this absolute um, uh, turning away from, from that. And the, the idea of specific verbal inspiration, completely gone. We've all heard the term the new hermeneutic, right? 
the new hermeneutic, which is absolutely no hermeneutic at all. Yeah, that's the new hermeneutic has its roots in relativism and humanism. And uh, one thing that some things that we have seen specifically among uh, churches of Christ, even non-institutional churches of Christ, is the lengthening of the days of Genesis one. Why do we need longer than a day? On the first day, on the second day, why? What good reason do we have for that? Ooh, to accommodate the to accommodate the theory of evolution. That is why we need longer than seven days, six days of creation and one day of rest. That's why we need longer than that. And so humanism has affected that, and that you will see in non-institutional churches. Absolutely, it is there, and there have been battles about that. Uh, um, in very recent years. And in fact, one of the battles that's kind of grown from that and a number of other issues is this idea of separating fellowship from the concept of doctrinal correctness. The Bible makes no such distinction between fellowship, who can you be in fellowship with, and doctrinal correctness. The Bible doesn't make that distinction, right? But there's a growing push to make that distinction and a lot of that kind of comes from here. Well, I don't agree with what he says about Genesis 1, but let's call him a brother. Um, even though he's flatly contradicting Scripture, let's call him a brother. You, you see that concept? And, uh, and that has spread to a number of other issues. And I think, and we are, we are seeing that among churches. It is a problem, absolutely a problem that we're dealing with is fellowship, who is my brother, that kind of thing. And... and the push to separate that, while, while I'm not saying that folks who are pushing to separate that are humanists and atheists. That's not what I'm saying. Let me be clear on that. Okay? I am not saying that. But I am saying that we're deceived if we do not think that humanism and relativism has influenced us and has influenced that thinking to push it in that direction. This concept of we can all be okay is absolutely related to that. I don't see how it cannot be. I don't see how it could be argued that those two are not related. It's so much in modern day Judaism that, that they don't even believe in God anymore. Yeah, yeah, that is true. That is true. That is absolutely true. I certainly don't believe all of that the, the Old Testament stories. Absolutely true. Very good. So some uh, just some things about relativism some arguments really against it. I have pointed this out, though not on a, on a, uh, as a bullet on a slide, but relativism is a self-defeating philosophy. It's inherently contradictory. There are no absolutes. Well, is that absolutely true? Do you see that? It's self-defeating. It, it is self-defeating. Um, you know, the, the, we can't, you know, the, there is no truth. Is that true? Do you see how it is? It is illogical. The philosophy itself is completely illogical. Okay? And again, you can ask the question, does relativism apply to natural law? Does it? I mean, you know, if I drop something from here, will it go to the ground? Every single time, right? Is that true? You see, relativism doesn't apply to that. You see, it doesn't apply to natural law. Natural law. There are absolute truths in nature. So relativism clearly can't be true across the board. Um, and uh, again, relativism completely undermines all morality. All morality. Relativism, there is no morality with relativism. There just isn't. There isn't because 
if everything's okay, if everything's relative, then there's nothing that's immoral. Do you see that? So morality then has no meaning if there's nothing that's immoral. Um, and if everyone is right, then it wouldn't, wouldn't it make just as much sense to say, if we say everyone's right, doesn't it make just as much sense to say, well, nobody's right? Doesn't that make just as much sense? So if everyone's right, then no one is. Um, and then where does relativism lead? Do you remember Genesis 19? Does anyone remember what's going on in Genesis 19? Off the top of your head. The story of Lot. Yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And do you remember how that the, the men and Lot, in Genesis chapter 19, verse 9, you know, he says, you came as a sojourner among us and, and you're sitting as a judge. Because Lot was judgmental about these people. So relativism, they were saying, don't you judge us, right? And this concept of relative truth and, and everybody's okay had led to the state of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where it leads. And Lot's vexing his soul caused him to think that he was a judgmental person. Um, and so relativism will lead to a society like that society of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where it will lead. All right. So you're going to see, you're going to hear some common arguments that uh, relativism is is true, and I grant that certain things are relative. So ask the question: Is it right to drive on the left side of the road? Is it? Nope. Well, it depends. It depends, right? Ask ask someone from England. They'll say we drive on the. They won't say the right side of the road. They'll say the. No, we drive on the right, don't we? But what do they say about us? We drive on which side of the road? It's the wrong side. It's the right side, but it's the wrong side. You see that? So is it right to drive on the left side of the road? Um, you know, and the, so there are certain things that are relative. Okay, there are sounds that irritate me, but not others. For example, when I'm watching a football game. I enjoy the sound of the crowd noise and the roar. It kind of makes me feel like I'm there. And it drives Lee nuts. She can't stand that noise and then she wants me to turn the TV down. But I like that sound. It gives me, you know, kind of excited. So, so that, you know, certain sounds irritate me that don't irritate others. Um, I love running long distances. Other people just cringe at the thought of running, you know, more than a few yards. Um, and, you know... So you're going to hear. So certain things are relative, right? But one thing that these things all have in common is that they're not moral questions. You see that? Is it immoral to drive on the left side of the road? I sure hope not, because I did it when I was in England. You see that? So that's not an absolute moral question. You see that? So it, 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 that is relative. But none of these questions are moral. The question is not. Is anything relative? That's not the question, because obviously certain things are. But the question is, is morality, or more importantly, is truth relative? All right? Now, to, to get back to, is truth relative? Is it right to drive on the left side of the road? Let's, let's phrase that in the context of truth. In the United States, it's correct to drive on the right side of the road. That's a true statement. In England, in Australia... It is correct to drive on the left side of the road. That's true. That, that, that can't be changed. So truth there is not relative. You can, you can get to a point where the, it can be stated as a true or a not true statement. And so that's the question. It's not, um, you know, it's not 
is anything relative? That's not the question. So don't be diverted by that. That may be an argument that a relative relativist would use. Now I want us to get to some Bible answers to relativism. Because many people are going to have this relativistic thinking. And I want us to look at what does the Bible say about relativism. John 8 and verse 32. And I would like us to read that because I haven't spent near enough time in the Scriptures in this course. And we may run out of time doing this, but that'll, that'll be just fine. In John chapter 8, you remember what's going on there? Jesus is having a, a pretty big debate with the Jews, right? And uh, there were certain Jews, though, that believed in Him. And Jesus says to these Jews who believed and became His disciples, John 8, 32, probably anybody in here can quote it. Um, if you're there, read it. Uh, could you read that for me, Greg? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Okay. So if truth is relative, how can we know the truth? Do you see that? Jesus expected His disciples to be able to know the truth. Okay? You shall know the truth. It can be known. It can be attained. And I think this is a key verse to show to someone who's suggesting that, well, we can't understand truth. We can't, you know, we can't agree. We're going to have to agree to disagree. Um, Matthew 4 and verse 4. Uh, you'll remember the context there is the temptation. Okay? The temptation of Jesus. And I think this is, this is so key because it goes beyond just understanding. Okay? Um, Charles, are you at Matthew 4 and verse 4? Can you read that for me? But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, so you remember Satan was tempting Jesus to turn the stones to bread, and Jesus' answer was, Man shall not live by bread alone. But how should man live? Uh, every word. By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay? So Jesus expected, and he understood that principle, right? He understood that principle that God's words can be understood and they must be obeyed, right? So we, 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 if we can't understand God's words, how can we live by them? Do you see that? How that relativism just doesn't fit some simple... These are simple Bible passages, right? And the, the nice thing about these is many of these, once you point them out, they're not going to be new to, to the average member of a denomination. Many of these won't be new at all. Um, Jesus expected the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 9, he was talking to the Pharisees, and this one, I, again, is key. Um, Hosea 6 and verse 6. Uh, Trevor, will you turn there to Hosea 6 and verse 6? And then, um, Lee, do you mind reading Matthew 9 and verse 13? Um, and so, where we are is Jesus expected the Pharisees to be able to read Hosea 6, 6, and then understand it. Can you read that? For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Okay, that's good. So that's what Hosea said. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's God's words. Believe Matthew 9, verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Huh. Now, how do you like that? What did Jesus say to those Pharisees? Go and what? Learn. Go and learn what this means. Okay? So obviously they weren't, they, they weren't living in such a way to know what that meant. Okay? And Jesus expected them to be able to read Hosea 6.6. 6, right? He quoted from Scripture. You go and you learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So we're expected to be able to read and learn the meaning of. So to me, this is a key, key passage in, in that. Go and learn what that means. And, and these can be multiplied. Surely, there, there are a number of others. That, and I'm even thinking of some as I'm standing here that I didn't think of when I was developing this material. Isn't that how it always goes? Um, Jesus expects us to be able to hear and understand the teaching of God. John 7 and verse 17. And I'm there, so I'll go ahead and, and read that. Um, but Jesus expected us, um, if anyone wills to do His will, He shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. So Jesus expected us to be able to hear and understand the teaching of God. We'll know concerning the doctrine whether or not it's from God. So we're we're supposed to be able to hear the doctrine and discern whether it comes from God or not. That was an expectation that Jesus placed upon His, uh, His disciples that He places upon us. And then back in John 6... And verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So those who come to the Father are those who have heard, they've understood, and they've learned the teaching of God. So very, very key points here to be made. And these are all, this slide, the emphasis is, on what Jesus had to say about it, uh, to, just to get out of the, to get out of our heads any idea of, you know, well, teach the man, not the plan, any any of that. This is what Jesus had to say about the principle of truth, and he had a lot more to say about it as well. Um, you know, I am the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just a number of passages are popping into my mind that Jesus said. All right, we have one more slide, and then then it's yours. 2 Timothy 2.15, no need to turn there, right? Probably everyone in here can quote that, right? Be diligent or study to show yourself approved, right? The man of God may be thoroughly equipped, right? Um, and now it's gone from me. But the, the command there is to rightly divide, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we are expected to look at God's word and to be able to rightly Implying there's a wrong way to do it, right? We're, we're expected to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. Um, Thessalonians? Well, there's only one, uh, one letter in the Thessalonians that has five chapters. So that should tell you which one that is. That's 1 Thessalonians. Yeah. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21. Um, we're expected to prove what is good. Okay? And then here are a number of passages that show that the Word of God can be misunderstood and misused. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2, what Paul says there is he says, look, we didn't handle the Word of God deceitfully among you. Paul says we didn't do that, implying that indeed it can be done. You remember the context of Acts chapter 20. That's where Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders, right? And what was one of the warnings he gave those Ephesian elders? Do you remember that? Some would arise speaking perversely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from among you, right? From, from you. among you speaking perverse things. So definitely the Word of God can be misunderstood and misused. And then this is a, an often quoted passage to teach that same principle. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16 where that Peter says, tells us about the... Tells us about some of the things Paul wrote, right? Some of them are hard to understand. 
And what do the unstable do with those passages that are hard to understand? He doesn't say they're difficult, they're impossible to understand. They're hard to understand. What do the unstable do? As as they do with what? The other scriptures. Okay. So it can be misunderstood and misused. Verse it also says they're twisted to their own destruction. Yes, to their own destruction. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's it. That's what I had to talk to you about. Um, any thoughts, questions, comments before we close? Thanks for the invitation to do this. All right.